and welcome for another episode of the Cover Vet Chat. Today, I'm afraid I've been at short notice called out to do um, a night shift. There's possibly a lot of our listeners and viewers uh, are experiencing as well from time to time. But I have the right person to talk to, and there's no one less than the recently appointed uh, Chief Veterinary um, Officer of Hills Pet Food, Professor Jolle Kirpenstein. Hi, Jolle. Hello, Wolfgang. So, How are you? So, so where in the world is Jolle at the moment? I, I have to ask this because you, you, it's, it's difficult to keep track of you. Yeah, it's very difficult to pin me down. Uh, currently, I'm in the beautiful city of Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where uh, me and my partner have a house. So, Global Chief Veterinary Officer at Hills. It doesn't go further than that, as far as I understand. It's the highest that... of the highest. Yeah, that is. I mean, this is something I really would like to talk uh, uh, with you about sort of a little bit later. But first of all, I mean, I've 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 followed your career sort of over the years because our our passes have crossed from time to time, and it's just as I as I said before, there's just no ending. So, and you also do jump sort of from one area to another area of expertise, and from one country to another country, and. I, I mean, a lot of our listeners and, and viewers are young veterinary surgeons, and I think that, I mean, in that respect, you are really somebody who is a role model because it shows sort of all the things you, 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 you can do. It's not just the clinical work. Mm -hmm. There is so, no limits in what you can do. So, so um, you qualified in 1988 it, in Utrecht. Yeah. Oh, did you have to say that now, Wolfgang? It gives me such a big <laughs> I time had to, stamp. I have to like... say it because it's a year before me. Oh, <laughs> that makes me feel so it. super yeah, yeah. young. So I try to avoid these, these timestamps normally uh, because that means that I'm really old already, but no. no. Yes, so I, I graduated from vet school in uh, 88, but uh, before that, uh, I also went to America as a student. So I okay. think that uh, my path started uh, way before that, of course, with two amazing parents uh, that were both uh, very cultural. Uh, so I'm kind of a privileged white kid. That's how I uh, describe myself. Um, and I had two amazing parents that uh, loved to introduce us to the arts uh, and the sciences. And so I've had a interest in, uh, in sciences from, uh, uh, from very young. But during my vet school, I had a professor that uh, stimulated his students to go abroad. And so he told me that, uh, you know, when, when we were still studying, we had a time in between the last year of vet school and the previous year. So in, the, in Holland, it's six and a half years. So at the fifth year mark, uh, we had to wait because it was a lottery to get into the clinics. And that lottery was uh, a little antiquated. So it, what the wait was about seven, eight months. So you had seven, eight months of nothing to do. Um, and so the professor said to me, um, you have to go abroad. If you want to learn more, you have to go abroad. And so he stimulated me to apply for scholarships. And then I applied for veterinary schools. I think I applied to five of them in that time. And three responded positively. And I chose the first one, which was uh, the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia, which is a small town. 
uh, in the boonies of, uh, of, of Georgia, the US. And I came, of course, from Utrecht and Amsterdam. So I was, uh, I thought, quite a worldly kid. Um, and then suddenly you're stuck in, 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 in the deep south, which was uh, mm. a culture shock, not only for the fact that I thought I was really uh, well-versed in English, but I could not understand anybody there. So <laughs> they spoke Southern slang, which was very, very difficult to understand. But uh, it was an amazing seven months. And I've, I've, I, I always tell people when they ask me, if you could do anything else, or what would you advise me? I would say, go abroad go to somewhere else that is not where you have grown into where you're comfortable at but look at spaces that you're uncomfortable at and go to that space and do something with veterinary medicine or do nothing with veterinary medicine but do something with yourself outside of your comfort zone and those seven months have were the greatest months that i've ever had I, it's, as a matter of fact i didn't want to go back i had to finish my vet school so i had to go back but i didn't want to go back i i have friends still uh, from that those times and i loved it interestingly enough in the us at that time uh, the studies were much more clinical so in utrecht they were really good in teaching the basics and theory and then you had like one year to go through all the clinics in the us they start with clinics already in the first year so they have a little different system but in the last four years of your vet school um, they started with clinics immediately in the first year so and I jumped into the senior year. So all those seniors already had three years of clinics uh, behind their belt. And I just came in there just as a complete theoretic person. Uh, so I had to uh, shift and be agile uh, and adapt myself, but I loved it. The clinics are amazing there. They allowed you to do a lot of things. People were so enthusiastic, very high level energy, but also high uh, level um, you know, of uh, teaching. And the good news was that the theory base of Utrecht was amazing. So I knew most of the, the questions that they asked me. It was just more difficult because the clinical skills were obviously a little less, but clinical skills you can learn. So uh, uh, during those eight months, I learned a lot of stuff. And then I came back to the clinics in Utrecht and I had this way advantage for anybody in uh, that came into clinics so it was easy for me to draw blood I could all I could do surgeries I had done many space already so I had this really big advantage on any of the other students that were in my group in Utrecht and so I got this really good theoretical education I passed my boards because of that so I did boards in the U.S. Uh, during that time and uh, and I passed my boards only because I had such an excellent uh, theoretical education in, in Utrecht um, and then of course I passed all the, the clinics that I did in Utrecht when I came back because I had this amazing uh, clinical education in the U.S. so it was a really good combination for me but it also showed me that I, I wanted to do more I, I, I didn't want to stop after being a student or even after graduation. So I wanted to do an internship and I wanted to do a residency and all sorts of other stuff. And I'm very enthusiastic about it. But at that time, it was really difficult to get into residencies and internships in the US. It still is difficult, but um, it was very, very tough. So I did a lot of extra work to, um, you know, to be able to go back as an intern. And I was lucky <laughs> enough to be accepted in the University of Georgia as a clinical intern which was another amazing year. So I was in, in Holland for one and a half years. 
uh, and then I went back to the US for a couple of years to do my internship, my residency, and then an oncology fellowship. And, uh, but the, the residency, uh, residency you did in, at, at Kansas State University yes. then? Yes, yeah, so and, I mean, normally when was... you have an internship, you go in a residency somewhere else. So I applied for Kansas State, got the surgery residency there. And then at Colorado State, I did my surgical oncology fellowship under Steve Withrow. So that was the only school at that time that really was focused on oncology. And that's the topic that I love the most. And uh, so I really wanted to go there, did an interview there, and I was accepted and I had another amazing year there uh, with uh, with amazing teacher. So I, I think, so my, my mantra is always, you can learn from anybody and you have to just distract as much information that you can get out of these people. Uh, and I've met some amazing leaders in my life uh, that have made me stronger. So, uh, so that's, that's, that's kind of the, the, the experiment of the experience that I had in the U S. So that's why I always say, you know, when you start thinking about doing something else, don't dive immediately into general practice, uh, take a year off, do some other stuff, get some life experience and then go back. Uh, your life is really long, so you can do a lot of other stuff uh, in between. It's so interesting because you see your, your background is, 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 is sort of American or, or, or Dutch. So you see my, my educational background was German. And you see, when I qualified, I... I traveled and I tried to get experience abroad. I went to Scandinavia and then I went also to Central America to improve sort of also on my language skills. Going back then to Germany, that was not an advantage. They looked at my CV and uh, the comment came so colorful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that was but that was not in a in a in a in a uh, particularly sort of positive way. Whereas sort of when I went over to the UK, it was, oh yeah, right. So there's more to this person than just sort of suck veterinary medicine, but but so somebody who has a little bit more of a horizon. So it was a completely sort of different attitude towards it. So um, yeah, interesting that you say that. That sort of that was sort of your university and your peers or your uh, 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 the people who educated you actually encouraged you mm, to go out to do different things. Mm. Absolutely. And obviously you have people that don't understand, you know, when you stick mm. out a little bit, uh, mm. they want to pat you down uh, to be mm. the same as everybody else. In yeah. the US, it's completely different. They really stimulate uh, excellence there. Um, in Europe at that time, it was more if you're mediocre, you're good enough. And you don't really have to to be excelling in in in, in a lot of things. Um, it, it's it's also a mindset mindset Wolfgang. I came back, and I did not have the mindset of you know I'm going to teach now what I learned. I was very humble uh, and humbled that I could go to America and that a lot of other people couldn't uh, try to help my uh, you know my fellow students as much as I could um, and. And had quite a lot of good relationships with, uh, in Utrecht at that time, there were a couple of professors that came from America or from abroad, and they really appreciate uh, that, that different view. Um, after um, Utrecht, of course, I went back to uh, the US. And when, and when I came into the US, what I thought as a student was amazing is that they were so happy to see me and to help me. You know, they were so... Uh, benevolent towards foreign students at that time, uh, which was great. 
But after I came back to Utrecht the second time, after I did all my internships and the residency and the fellowship, I met a lot more resistance in the beginning because they mm. thought that, you know, okay, he's going, he wants to tell us because, you know, I was specialized in oncology. I had passed my boards in America. I had extra oncology uh, education. So I was of the idea that they would come to Utrecht and they would embrace the fact that they had an oncologist now suddenly because they didn't have one and that they would allow me to set up this whole oncology, um, you know, sub uh, division but that didn't happen I mean, as a matter of fact people tried to keep on because you know oncology was done by an ear nose and throat person and by a chest person and by a gi person and people had really a tough time with letting that go and having a stranger come in just taking away cases and and i, I also understand that you know it's it's you know if you have done it for years and years in the same way it's really difficult to break out of that mold and allow people to do something different. So it took a couple of years. And in those years, I just focused on my research because I wanted to have a PhD. So I did a PhD in, uh, in, uh, in, in oncology. And with doing that, I started getting credi credibility with the oncologists that were there at that time. And, uh, and then they, they saw the use of having a multidisciplinary oncology service. So where surgeons and radiation oncologists and medical oncologists would be working together. And for instance, uh, Dr. Eric Teske, uh, who was my mentor in Utrecht, an amazing, amazing oncologist, he saw immediately that that was the way to go. So I think he was a great help in bridging that surgical uh, medical oncology gap that was in Utrecht for a long, long time. And, and so I, th I think it is, you know, even if you know more, you still need to be humble about what others know. And they can bring you other things that that you can learn from again. So um, change will happen, but sometimes change goes fast and sometimes change goes very, very slow. But as long as you see change, it's okay. Um, obviously, your, your area of interest uh, has always been surgery. Um, uh, was that um, something sort of uh, you already had in your childhood that you like to do sort of, um, uh, uh, I don't know, handicraft woodwork or something like that? Or, uh, I mean, I know, I think you, uh, you're also a painter. Uh, you, uh, so, so there is certainly also, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that because, I mean, I had the, the, the great pleasure uh, uh, following some of your lectures and, uh, for example, one at, at uh, Wetfest that uh, North Fitzpatrick is organizing. And I remember sort of how you, how, how, how much emphasis you laid on sort of the, the, the delicate handling of tissue edges, for example, which I found, wow, this is really sort of interesting. And, but, but has it always been sort of that you were sort of also manually sort of uh, quite creative? As a kid, and mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's interesting, an interesting question, because as a kid, I cannot remember that I was that creative. I, I, like I said, my parents were very creative. So my, my mother is a professional harp player. My dad was a very good flute player. My grandmother was an opera singer. And I can go on and on and on. So mm -hmm. that artistry was in the family. Um, they tried music with me and I completely failed. I was horrible. So you have two parents that are perfect in music 
you would think you put them together, all those genes, then you get the little prodigy child, Yola Kerpenstein. But that obviously didn't happen because in music, I completely failed. I, you know, I, I like music, but I cannot make it. So they were a little bit disappointed in that with my brother and my sister, which none of them were really very good in music. But if you look at the next generation, suddenly we have two people in our family that are super wonderful musicians. My uncle was a painter in Indonesia. He was pretty famous, uh, as a matter of fact. So when I was young, I liked uh, drawing and painting, um, but I never that was never picked up by any teachers. So I did a little bit myself, and I find some drawings from that time, which were quite interesting. So I started doing it again in the late '90s. So that's when I picked up uh, painting again. And I agree with you that most veterinarians, most veterinarians are um, artist in a way. So there's a lot of veterinarians that do woodwork. There's a lot of veterinarians that paint. There's a lot of veterinarians that would do other things that are uh, that that are part of the arts and culture. Um, and so uh, so when I started painting again, I I really noticed I liked it. So for me, it's a I'm a very extrovert person normally. Uh, so I like or to be around people. I draw energy from people and I'm, I'm very, very extrovert. But when I paint, I'm very introvert. So that is my time that I can be alone. And, and I'm kind of an abstract painter. So I take things that I see and then change them. But nobody can disturb me during that time because that really disturbs my, my flow. Um, we have a uh, group, a veterinary group. It's called uh, Art Vet Now on Facebook, uh, which uh, consists of uh, veterinary artists, and it's mm. amazing work what they do. So it's called Art Vet Now. So A R T V E T N O W, and it's amazing uh, uh, what people do on that. Uh, a very good friend of mine, Gunther Schwartz, who is a, uh, a surgeon from uh, Switzerland. Uh, he uh, he's retired now, I think, but uh, he. He paints the most beautiful things and and there's more people there that that do some amazing things so i do think that that veterinarians have an artsy streak uh in them and i remember that when i was uh, still an intern that i had a friend that did a lot of woodworking with his hands to answer your question about surgery um i always felt that i was not the best sur surgeon in the world uh when i was young and also during my studies uh but that is once again also something you can train. And at the end, obviously, I became a pretty good surgeon. Uh, but I also tried to find my niche. So, niche. so I, I did orthopedics. I did all the surgeries that I needed to do. And I found out that, that I was better in soft tissue surgery than orthopedic surgery. So that's why I was driven to soft tissue surgery. And, and you're true. I mean, it's, I feel that doing surgery is like painting. You, and especially oncology surgery, you never know what you get. And so you have to be adaptive and you have to be very, very careful. Uh, and, and so it's, it's working with your two hands um, and, uh, and, and in, in unison really with the body that, that you're dealing with. Uh, and there, humility is another factor that plays a role because I always feel that when I deal with surgery and with patients and with clients that who am I to cut their dog, you know? So I always feel that that I, I've never been really aggressive in like, oh, I'm, I'm the surgeon and I'll fix your dog. No, I, I really want to know what, what the owner wants to get out of the surgery. And then with oncology, sometimes it's, it's a really tough discipline, of course, because uh, often they don't survive. So you really need to 
have that humility to say, you know, this is a really bad tumor. I'm going to do the best what I can and, and then stretch also uh, your capabilities. So one thing that I learned from, from Steve Withrow was that nothing is impossible, um, even with tumors. So I'll often people give tumors a death sentence, and I understand that because it is a really bad disease. But you should not be, your, your brain should not be uh, trained for this. Your brain should be trained for, let's look at the possibilities that we have, and maybe we can create possibilities. So even in surgery, uh, we developed new techniques and, 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 and we went further than most people went as an oncologic surgeon, because you know the basis really well, and then you add and build on, on what you know. So I think that's, once again, artistry. So what some people do in surgery is just unbelievable. And I think they're artists in themselves, just in a, with a different palette. It's just in my, in my case, I mean, as a humble sort of first opinion uh, practitioner, I noticed that once I sort of uh, progressed with my surgical skills, actually my DIY skills also improved because say with orthopedic surgery, for example, I mean, you, you, you need to have a rough idea about of statics, for example, what will hold, what will not hold. And I could translate that also to DIY. And the same thing sort of um, also with needlework. I mean, sort of I, for example, if, if some of my outdoor gear breaks also, then I usually, I take needle and suture and I stitch that up as well. And not with a needle holder, by the way. Oh, but I so, do, yeah. Yeah, so I don't touch anything with my fingers. I'm so used to needle holders. And, okay. and, 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 and in the last part of the career, the, the other thing that I think is really important, Wolfgang, to, mm -hmm. um, to stay interested in what you do. So I have this mantra that every five years I change my goals of what I want, want to reach. And so I could have been a surgeon for a very, very long time. And I was because every five years, I just wanted to have a different technique or a different thing that I really was deep diving in. And the last couple of years of my uh, surgery career, I was really going into minimal invasive surgery, which was mm. at the brink at that time. So now there's a lot of people doing it. But and once again, you learn from teachers, uh, from some really great people. Dr. Rafael Nickel is, was my teacher, uh, a very famous German surgeon in the north uh, of Germany. Uh, and, and he taught me how to do minimal phase of surgery. And so he was a great mentor for me uh, to start that, that practice. And then 20 years later, of course, now I'm, I'm talking about minimal phase of surgery as if I invented it. But that's not the case. You know, you always have people before you that stimulate you, that empower you to do so. And, and I think for us, then our role is to empower other people to do the same thing. So I see now a lot of my residents and, and, and people that studied with me do things that I'm very, very proud of because, you know, it, you put a little seed in their, their brain and or in their minds, and then it grows to this wonderful tree at a certain point. And, and so it, it makes me really happy to see people uh, being empowered and then taking the skills that they have and expand those. And uh, I mean, you then went sort of from the States, you went back to Utrecht and then so you, you went to Copenhagen. How did that came, came about? 
Yeah, so I had three years. I studied, was a professor in surgery in Copenhagen. A friend of mine was there and she asked if I could help. So I had a part-time appointment for in Copenhagen one week a month for three years. A wonderful experience. You know, first, the Nordic countries are amazing. Nordic people are amazing too, to work with. Um, and uh, and Denmark is such a, a, a wonderful country to, to live in. So So there were lots of... Uh, great things that the university there was really up and coming and so they have a very enthusiastic young team and it was great to be a team leader there so that's where I kind of learned to be a team leader you know in in Holland we I was part of a team already there I had to lead the team and so I got a lot of new information and new learnings out of that and when you have a young enthusiastic team you can do anything you know we look at Ted Lasso right now you know on English TV uh, that series is really built on um, empowered leadership you know uh, and so that that is something that you can do with a team that's eager to learn and you can you can bring them to really great heights so it's a fantastic opportunity I, I love my stay there and that was for three years until they offered me a full position in surgery a full professor position in surgery in Utrecht so then I had to mm to say goodbye to my uh, Copenhagen friends. But, you know, Copenhagen is a part of my heart since then because they're an amazing group of people. Well, I, w I, I can't deny what you said about the Nordic countries. I mean, I'm at the moment uh, talking to you from, from, from north of Sweden. So I'm working at the moment with a Swedish team and it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's, it's really good. Mm -hmm. oh, good for you. Yeah. So, but then, but then, as you said, sort of after five years, you 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 refocus again. So then uh, surgery, sort of, uh, um, you you change completely, massive change, completely away from surgery, and then you went to hills. And I mean, then we are talking probably more sort of animal nutrition. That was two thousand thirteen. How how did that come about? Yeah, so the, the, the five-year itch is a, is a real thing for me, uh, and it doesn't have to be five years. It can be four years or six years or whatever, but I always get itchy after a while, and then I'm looking at new opportunities. When you're a, a full professor in Utrecht and probably other schools too, you also realize that you have other responsibilities, so I couldn't be in surgery every day anymore. I had a lot of uh, administrative functions that I had to do, um, and uh, and... At that time, uh, I had to make a choice if I wanted to be a, a crown-appointed professor. It's a very difficult system in Utrecht, but a certain type of professor, which also meant that I probably sh should have become, uh, for instance, department leader, or maybe at, at a certain point, associate dean or full dean or whatever. You know, that trajectory, which means really business, academic business. And when I was uh, thinking about that, I was like, one, I don't know anything about business. I know how to work with a team because I've done that now for 10 years, but I'm not really very good in business skills. And now they expect me to do this multi-million dollar business venture. And I also know that the, the in, in the academia, there's limited resources for you to learn from other people uh, because you're so busy. Uh, nothing against academia and nothing about, against real good business leaders within academia. And so I was like, okay, if I want to do something with business, and I had two uh, corporations at that time. Uh, one was for my lectures and another one was uh, what was something else. And I was really intrigued by business administration and doing business. 
and um, Hills reached out to me through a good friend who was leaving the company and she said hey I, uh, I would like to ask you and at first my reaction was of course not I have nothing but nutrition you know I know nutrition I had the basis because nutrition oncology is quite important but as a surgeon that's not the first focus you have they should have but they don't and so I was like no 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 but then I started talking with the uh, her boss, which was the CEO at that time, uh, went to Kansas, and it really triggered my interest. So I need to get these triggers, um, and if they pull the right triggers, then I get interested. And I was like, hmm, this is this is you know, it's five years. I've done this for a long time. I've been surgeon for a long time now. Uh, there are things that I really like, but there's also things that we I don't like. And I want to go back to your evening and night shift. That's that's. The evening and the night shifts were very, very tough, especially if, if you don't have a big team. So every week you have to do evening and night shifts. And in the university, it means that almost every time someone came in. So uh, it was very, very taxing. And then the university doesn't have a very good system at that time to compensate you for those hours. So they just expect you as a full professor to be back in the morning and do as nothing, uh, nothing was wrong with it. And when you're really young, everything is fine and you can do it. But I got a little older and I was like, you know, this is too much taxing. On the other hand, the best surgeries that I've ever done in my life were always at night. You know, you had not to deal with anybody else. You could do whatever you want. You could experiment. And I love that part. You're a small team, so you're, 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 you're as if you are in a, I, I think it's as if you are in a ship. There's a certain camaraderie you have then with this team. You also get to know your team members a little bit closer, sort of, and especially sort of over the surgery table. I mean, you, you will have had that. So you have all sorts of conversations because people can't run away. They, they have to yeah, do the anesthesia. I have to assist also. And well, yeah, where you can listen to music or you can talk and you can talk sometimes about very interesting things, I find. Mm. It's, it's very good mm. to see how teams work under stress situations during yeah. industry. So once again, you learn a lot from teamwork uh, under stress, um, which mm. is another thing that, of course, I took with me. But uh, so when that friend reached out to me, I was like, OK, you know, there's benefits because I always do a benefit analysis, you know, there's benefits and there are things against it and make my little list and weigh them. And at a certain point, I was like, hey, the benefits of this, making this jump and learning how to do real business, because I, you know, the, the, the guarantee that I got from going to Hills was this is a this is a global company. So you have to know something about business to be able uh, to survive in that uh, environment. And so I knew that they would give me the tools to become a better business leader. Uh, and, and so that was, that was the intriguing part for me. I always wanted to go back to the US. That, that's another reason that uh, I made that decision. Although it was very, very tough to leave my family, uh, which, was once, which was on the bucket that you know, was not so good. So I always do that, uh, that balance, counterbalance uh, argument. And then I make a decision and you know, new adventures uh, are really enticing for me. You know, I, you know the DISC profile uh, where they look at your personality. I'm a big I, which, uh, you know, I love innovation. I love changes. Uh, and so that, that is something that really works for me. And it keeps me very excited about the things that I'm doing. Um, it was 180 degree because no more surgery, uh, completely uncomfortable situation in the beginning. But like I said, that was poured into me really, really young. Um, and I, you know, it, 
it, it challenges me too. And Hills is an amazing company to work for. The people are so dedicated for, you know, our core belief uh, that the pet is at the center of everything. Um, and, uh, and that the profession is super important in that relationship. And, and so I have met so many amazing people from all facets of the company, marketing, the sales team, legal, it doesn't matter. There's, you, you often don't realize in those big companies how many people are working for those companies um, and how much talent there is there because they're really a talent-driven organization that stimulates people to do the right thing one. And also, um, if, if, if you're good at something, you will definitely uh, climb up the, the social ladder. So now this at the before the end of the year you were appointed uh, global chief veterinary officer so as a in in that position what are what is your brief what do you have to do uh, so that we have a rough idea also i mean as a european in a in a, in a global company is are you the first european holder of this position or because uh, obviously we have to remember sort of that, that Hills Colgate is predominant an American or initially American uh, company. And it started in America. It's, uh, you know, Colgate obviously is, uh, it has subsidies everywhere in the world, just, just as Hills does. But, you know, I started in Hills as the global relation officer, uh, which was a really good choice for Hills to do because I was just, uh, at the end of my WSAVA presidency, so I was the president of the World Small Animal Veterinary Association, and I had, you know, relationships all over the world. So to introduce a person, and I think businesses are really good at that, to find the person that they need for specific positions, and they needed the person that was good at international relationships. So that's how it came in, professional relationships. Uh, I did that uh, for a while under Dr. Marina De Bernardi. Um, who was the chief energy officer uh, at, at that time. Um, and then they moved me from that position to the US. So I was the chief energy officer in the US, while Marina was the chief energy officer in the world or global. Um, and uh, the US position was really focused on the US business, only the US. Um, this position, of course, is uh, after Marina decided to retire. And she has been an amazing amazing leader uh, for us for hills but also for the profession because she's a veterinarian she's from italy uh, she has a lot of experience in the professional world but she also had a lot of professional uh, experience in the hills world and colgate world because she was there for more than 20 years uh, so she was a wealth of in, uh, experience uh, and did a, did a really great job and so i'm really proud to be able to say that she was my mentor once again I'm going back to that mentorship, that mentorship that you have with, uh, with people that, uh, that guide you in your path uh, towards your end station, whatever end station it is. Uh, but she was an amazing mentor to me. So I'm very, very grateful for her. Um, the global position is focused on the profession uh, globally. And that's the US too. So it's the position that is an umbrella position. Obviously, I have a CEO above me, and I have lots of peers that are part of the exec uh, group uh, that peers in sales and in marketing and in digital. There's a lot of uh, people that I work with because I think these companies show how good teams work together. 
And so it's not that, hey, it's Yola that does everything. No, it's just more the team does everything. And I'm just a part of that. But I'm an essential part because the profession for Hills is really important. It's, you know, it's the center of how we're doing business. Um, and, and so the, uh, and because the profession is so important, they will need a person that one understands the profession. And that's one of my tasks. So to, and to explain the profession to people that, are not as well known with the profession. And on the other hand, to be at the face of hills towards the profession. So, you know, the profession changes all the time too. And, you know, I think there, we, I've said that already for a couple of years, uh, the profession is right now in a disruption phase. So things are happening right now. There's early signs of, of disruption going on. Uh, corp corporates, for instance, is, there, is, is one of the disruptors that are happening right now. But e-commerce is another. And the veterinarians need to start adapting to that because that ecosystem of veterinary medicine is going to change because of these disruptions that are happening. And, and I think that, uh, that as chief veterinary officer for Hills, I can help the profession with that too, to see those early warning signs and also to explain to them why it's important to invest, for instance, in e-commerce solutions? Why is it important to invest in telehealth uh, services? And I understand a lot of veterinarians are, you know, I'm, I don't have time for that. It's a pandemic. I, you know, I, I cannot even think about these things, but the world is changing. And what is more important that your consumers are changing. And veterinary medicine is a consumer centric uh, profession. And if you lose the consumer, you lose your, you know, your livelihood. So you need to see where the consumers are. And if the consumer wants telehealth, you better get telehealth in your system. Or if the consumer wants to buy in your clinic, but also outside your clinic, you better be able to, uh, to give that to the consumer because if you don't, someone else will. And you know, the, the changes are happening so fast right now in this new world that we live in and digital has to do with it. That, that it is a very exciting time, but for people that don't like change, it's a very scary time too. So I know that, uh, that my role in, in Global will be to help people navigate through these rough times too. So we're there, not in only good times, but also in difficult times. And I think the difficult times are here right now with people being very, very stressed and emotionally challenged because of the pandemic and then all the changes that are on top of that. The pandemic has really put us in. So we were, I always say that we were on the river and we noticed that the river was going faster. And normally when a river goes faster, there is something that happens. And often that's like, you know, a waterfall or something like that. But in, in the pandemic season, suddenly from faster, it goes with, warp speed so yeah. now you know you're very close to the edge and you better start doing something because otherwise you will go off the edge and so that's in the situation that we are in the pandemic really uh, increased the velocity of the changes um, and so for me it, you know I, I love the fact that i'm once again back in global i have a much more strategic job in the u.s very executional here's a strategic job how we can help veterinarians uh, be the best uh, in what they do, because it's a profession, it's a very needed profession, but the profession will change. Um, and, and so that's, I mean, one, that's... one change we also all experience now is also sort of when 
the question of sustainability and uh, uh, the carbon footprint of of the work we are doing. And I mean, then then sometimes the question arises, sort of, in how far is it justifiable to um, uh, uh, to keep pets and 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 to feed pets? I I, I don't know, sort of, uh, uh, with uh, uh, predominantly sort of meat based uh, uh, diets. Also, uh, how 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 is Hill sort of uh, addressing this issue? Of approaching this question yeah there's a couple of uh, um, issues that hills feels very very strongly about and one is of course sustainability like everybody should i mean sustainability is not a problem that is just hills sustainability is a problem that we all have how do we deal with the energy that we use the footprint that we have etc etc and what do we do to change that you know um, it's very simple for instance if you change all your light bulbs with LED bulbs. I mean, you change history because you do your part that you need to do. Um, if you look at bigger industries, we need to do something with this earth. We only have one earth. And if we mess it up, there's nothing that we can go to, at least not yet. We haven't found any other survivable planet. So let's take care of this planet. And everybody plays a role. And it's not only you and I, but also a company like Hill. So, so one of the things that I'm really enthusiastic about that we just announced a uh, partnership with a uh, with Bond, which uses cultured meat, for instance, as an alternative for, uh, I'm not saying that we suddenly will only use uh, cultured meat in all the products that we have. But we are trying to find out if there's alternatives to, to meat production. But you have to realize if we do that, that will also hurt part of our profession too that is now really important in meat production. So that group also needs to start thinking about how they can become more sustainable. Um, and how do we deal with large congregations of animals in one spot? I was, I'm from Holland. It's one of the biggest exporters of uh, poultry, biggest exporter of uh, a pork meat but putting all those animals in very small spaces also give risks and you know then you get those communicable diseases that suddenly pop up uh, and so there's a, a lot of work that we as veterinarians need to do and we need to have a central role once again here because the profession is educated to know about public health to know about the animals that they treat because you know i always say uh, i i treat the animals and i'm humble about it because I try to make them better, so I'm very focused on, uh, on therapeutic, but also preventative. So who am I that I'm allowed to treat animals? You know, that it's, it's an honor for me to do so. So I want the best for them too. Uh, and so, and then next to that, I think once again, everybody has a personal relationship with being sustainable. If we don't do it as a whole community, it's not going to work. We can blame you know, we can blame countries, we can blame people, we can blame, but really you only have to blame yourself uh, for not making a difference. So if anybody listens to the podcast, I would say, okay, what are you going to do this year to make the earth more sustainable? And, uh, and if we all do that, it will turn it around. I, I'm absolutely, I'm a complete optimist in these things. I think if people understand how dire the situation is, and hopefully they do, uh, then we'll turn it around. Another issue is uh, you have been um, 
quite an outspoken uh, advocate for LGBT rights and you have highlighted issues. In how far has this um, been in your, your personal life, in your personal pathway, sort of over the years been an issue? And also, uh, how does HILTS sort of help you uh, or support you uh, uh, in this sort of context? Um, a very good question. Uh, definitely a topic of my heart. Uh, it's 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 not easy uh, when you're different. Um, and I'm not only talking about myself because I said I was a privileged kid. I always say I was a privileged kid until I found out I was gay, because then suddenly a lot of privileges you lose. Um, in the beginning, it was tough. I I you know I found out when I was in my twenties that I was gay. And I had a very supportive family. So I did not have any issues at home. Like I said, my parents, amazing, amazing parents that I had, uh, they accepted it uh, as is. But during my first parts of my studies, I was pretty quiet about it. I didn't want to have it influence my chances, etc. At least I thought that way. And probably the US was a little bit not as open to the uh, situ of the, the, the thought process uh, as it is now. At a certain point, I made a decision for myself, though, that I wanted to live my life the way that I wanted to live. And since then, I've become a very, very uh, strong voice for the LGBTQ community in, in the profession. Um, but also, you know, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion is a topic that we all should be talking about, because it's not only uh, people that are um, that have different genders or different gender um, interest it's people it's women and the, the the gap that women have in in society it is uh, people in the u.s it is a race which is a really big point um, in europe handicapped people that are struggling to be able to reach the things that that people that don't have a handicap uh, can reach uh, indigenous people that have been suppressed for a long, long time. I think we need to look at a society where we, uh, where we celebrate these differences and where we can use those differences to become stronger. I can tell you from research that if you have a diverse team, your team will be much better than if it's all the same people because all the same people think the same. So then you can only do the same and you will never change. So you need a diversity to be able to see that change. But diversity is not the only thing that we need. We need an inclusion. So, you know, you can have a whole team that is diverse, but if you don't include them in the important discussions, it's not going to help. And then you have to have equity. You have, you know, they have to have the same chance. It's important that, you know, I, I have always very strongly felt about, you know, um, that women need to get the same chance as, as men have. And transgender, transgender people need to have the same chances so for me it is such an important topic and we just started with it we are in infancy there's still so much that we can do and that we need to do and we need to listen to people talk about it and i, I learned a lot because when i came to the u.s for the first time i i in i, I always say that i went to I was in Amsterdam and it's a very free country, Holland, and, and everything is allowed, etc. And then I went to Georgia and I was in the deep south and there was still segregation there. So there were areas where whites were only allowed to go and it was a shocker for me. But that also made me dive into that topic and understand that African-Americans have a long way 
my way is really easy. I, you know, you can't see that I'm gay from the outside. Uh, so I get all the opportunities. But if you're black, you don't get all the opportunities. And if you are handicapped, you don't get all the opportunities because people will immediately put you in a, a in in you know a little corner where they say, okay, uh, this is how far you can go. And and you know the Paralympics show that they can do things that nobody thought about. And they do things much better than I do. So who am I to tell them that they cannot do things? It is that like, like what we started with, the options are endless. As long as you allow the environment and the peers to be able to empower people to reach their goals. Something else you, you're very active in is uh, professional social media and also um, uh, digital innovation. So, so I've, uh, I've, I understand sort of you, you have, obviously you have this very successful uh, per podcast uh, together with uh, Dr. Susan Little. Um, and then there's also a global veterinary surgery podcast you, you're producing. Yeah, so social media is one of my passions once again. I think uh, a lot of people talk about the bad side of social media, but I think social media is a way that you can reach other people too that you normally didn't reach. So for me, it is a, it's once again a source of energy. Um, two podcasts uh, that I have right now, uh, the PER podcast is the one that we put most emphasis on. We found out during our lectures, Dr. Susan and I, that people ask the same questions. And the same questions were fueled by that a lot of people don't know where to find information about cats. So this is a podcast for veterinary professionals only about cats. We are not allowed to say the D word in, um, in that <laughs> podcast. And we have a lot of people that are experts in cats talk with us. Uh, uh, it's a fun podcast to listen to. It's only 20 minutes. And it's so much fun to make. The Veneer Surgery Podcast is a little bit uh, more serious. And I, I have to say, I haven't done one for a while. I need to get back to, to that. Uh, but it's located, it's associated with the Global Veneer Surgery Facebook page, uh, where we have more than 7,000 uh, people uh, talking about surgery topics. And, uh, and that's something, of course, of my passion. One thing that I did this year was publish uh, my basic surgery book, uh, Free. So it is a flip book and a downloadable PDF of basic surgery techniques. And I wanted to do that because, you know, um, if you are in Africa, you might not have money to buy books or you might not be able to have books there, but everybody has mobile phones. So I wanted to make a mobile surgery book that everybody could read. Uh, and so I, uh, I put a little money in the design, et cetera, et cetera. I had a wonderful um, editor that helped me with that and this was a book that we used to use in Utrecht and so I asked the authors if they wanted to help and they did and so they all revamped the chapters and now we have a free downloadable freeware you can share as much as you want you can use as much as you want uh, and it's all free for for to increase the knowledge in surgery and I think that's that's the important part I always stay a teacher in my heart you know, I've done teaching for so long that uh, we need to find ways to elevate the level of knowledge everywhere in the world. And these are two little things that I do to do that. And I think it is important that people realize that these things are available. And, uh, and you as FECAFA are doing the same thing. And WCVA is doing the same thing that, you know, you really want to help people become better veterinarians. And it's very much appreciated. 
Certainly, and uh, certainly social media and the internet has helped a lot. I mean, before then, it was so difficult sometimes to get our journals sort of shipped to certain places of the world. Now, suddenly, if you have an internet access, you can get it. And that makes a huge case for, for some of our colleagues, absolute lifesaver. Mm. And think about sustainability here, too. So you don't have to print all those journals anymore that people will throw away. Uh, you can just get it online. I think the digital revolution is still happening. Uh, that's one another disruptor that's happening right now. So you have to look look what 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 influence that will have on on your practice in your life. But and 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 let's go back then to the consumer. Where do you think the consumer is right now? The consumer is on social media, and so that's where they get most of the information. If you think that um, they get the information from a newspaper or from you lecturing somewhere, you're mistaken. They get it from their peers on social media. Yeah. So that's where you have to be. Three quick final questions. Um, when, you, when you take a break, when you settle down in the evening, can you introduce us to your favorite drink? Do you have anything you, you quite sort of like, or if somebody wants to give you a present, what sort of drink can they give you? <laughs> yeah, so it, 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 it's funny because I, I sometimes have those moments that I think that I am uh, overweight and then I don't drink for a while. So, I, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, promote drinking in general. And I love tea in the afternoon or in the evening. I'm, I'm, that must be the English part of me. I love hot tea. Uh, but if you would push me what then my favorite drink is, I would say probably a gin and tonic. And I always say that a gin and tonic is my favorite drink because it works against malaria. So wherever you are, <laughs> if they bite you, you know, you don't get malaria. So, but no, yeah, that's a it joke. With a lot of shinin, yeah. Mm. Yes. And so then... that, but that, that, that's a joke. I think that that, uh, that would be my favorite drink. But right now, it's a matter of fact, I'm in a period that I don't drink at all. Um, it has to do with... Uh, um, with the fact that sometimes I like to unplug myself, unplug myself from social media, unplug myself from eating meat. I don't eat a lot of meat anyway, but uh, or unplug myself from uh, from drinking, and then I have like a month or two months that I don't do anything. It's a it's a nice way of uh, refreshing yourself again. Then one surgical instrument, or one not surgical, one instrument that you would say sort of that is completely underused or something you would recommend to younger colleagues? Is there anything that sticks out? Uh, well, I, I think endoscopic surgery is, of course, the answer there. I think everybody should use it because it's minimal invasive. And Please give it a try. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And, and, and um, minimal invasive uh, spaying and cath uh, is, is definitely the way to go. And in chest surgeries, it has taken away most of the procedures that we do so if you really want to do something different and it is cool because it's it it looks like you're playing a game you know it's like if people love playing these uh, these uh, vr games minimal face surgery is the way you should go and finally one person that you would say really sort of made a huge difference for you or that inspired you or uh, who yeah, would you say? mentioned uh, two persons. The first one is Dr. Frank Meutstedt. He's the one that said that I had to go to America. So he was a professor in orthopedics at Utrecht University, an amazing person. Uh, and he really stimulated me to look outside of the box. And the other one is Steve Withrow, who really showed me 
that surgical oncology and oncology is a fantastic profession to have. Um, he was a great mentor and he's still a great mentor. He's taught so many people um, that, uh, that yeah, I'm very proud to, to have been part of, uh, of his uh, life river, of his path. Jolly, thank you so, so much for spending the time with me and giving us an insight in your life. Um, and uh, I am sure that, that uh, um, our listeners sort of drew some inspiration out of that. Um, if anybody would like to comment on this or any other episode of Fekava VetChat, please email us on vetchat at fekava.org or contact us via our social media outlets. Yoli, thank you so much again. And uh, I hope that I see all of you back again for another episode of Fikava Vet Chat very soon. Bye-bye.